What kind of a show are you guys putting on here today? You're not interested in art? No. Now look, we're going to do this thing. We're going to have a conversation. From Chicago, this is Film Spotting. I'm Adam Kempinar. And I'm Josh Larson. He's 50 million miles away from home. He thinks he's totally alone. He thinks we gave up on him. I mean, what does that do to a man psychologically? What the hell is he thinking right now? He's probably just hoping he's in a Ridley Scott movie as good as Alien. He should just hope that he's in a movie better than Prometheus. How dare you? I did kind of just hand you that one on a platter, though. The guy 50 million miles from home is Matt Damon. The movie, Ridley Scott's The Martian. Our review, plus a look ahead at the Chicago International Film Festival, which opens next weekend. That and much more. Big things have small beginnings, Josh. Ahead on Film Spotting. We're very pleased to welcome back Audible.com as a supporter of Film Spotting. Audible.com is a leading provider of audiobooks with more than 180,000 downloadable titles across all types of literature, including fiction, nonfiction, and periodicals. Audiobooks, of course, are great to listen to when you're doing, well, the things you probably usually do when you listen to Film Spotting. Maybe you're stuck in traffic, you're on the subway, you're on the bus, doing chores around the house, whatever it may be. This is how you can stay literate, Josh, stay tuned in to the culture at large and for our audience members audible is offering a free audiobook to give you a chance to try out their service i am a regular audible user and i have a couple recommendations josh because i was inspired after our review of the end of the tour to learn more about david foster wallace and to actually encounter some of his work which i hadn't done up to that point and i downloaded consider the lobster and other essays selected essays from david foster wallace those are read by David Foster Wallace himself. So it's great to actually hear his voice. And you know what's surprising? He sounds remarkably like Jason Siegel. I also downloaded, although of course you end up becoming yourself, A Road Trip with David Foster Wallace. That is the book that inspired the movie. And as a fan of the movie, it turns out I'm a fan of the book as well. If I had used Audible for Infinite Jest, it might not have taken me eight months to finish. Exactly. I'll have to do that next time. To download any of these books for free or another one of your choice, go to audiblepodcast.com slash filmspotting. That's audiblepodcast.com slash filmspotting. The last time it was my turn to do one of these intros, the film was Black Mass, which I knew going in, neither of us, Josh, cared for. So I challenge you to come up with one thing you liked about the movie. You were Mr. Positive. Indeed. Turns out that was a challenge. Even your compliments were backhanded. I'm going to recycle this conceit for The Martian, but with a twist. Unless you think I was just in too much of a hurry to come up with something a little more clever. I mean, come on, after all, The Martian is a movie about an astronaut abandoned on Mars, forced to survive on his creativity, intelligence, and sheer determination. Surely I could have compelled myself to try a little harder while sitting comfortably at the coffee house a few hours ago, eating a scone and drinking a horchata latte while Matt Damon's Mark Watney got by on potatoes grown in his own. Well, maybe best we don't talk about that. Let me say this. I walked out of The Martian thinking something I rarely think walking out of a movie. How could anybody not like that? <laughs> not going to make your top five or 10 films of the year list. Not going to rush back to the theater and see it a second or third time. Not one you're going to run out and buy on Blu-ray the second it's released. Fine. I can get behind all of that. But a bad movie? Boring? Unentertaining? Unfunny? Not well shot by director Ridley Scott and DP Darius Volsky, who shot Dark City and Scott's Prometheus, and the also just released The Walk? Not well acted by Damon? and Jeff Daniels and Chiwetel Ejiofor as NASA directors, and Jessica Chastain and Michael Pena, among others, as Watney's crew members. 
The Martian is unhateable. What am I missing, Josh? What did you dislike about The Martian? And I'll even spot you a potential answer. Is its utter inoffensiveness, in fact, its downfall? Say what you will about Prometheus, a movie that, despite its surface-level similarities and shared director, I have no desire to dwell on during this review, it had grand ambitions. Some people loved it. Some people, like you, mostly loathed it. But it provoked passionate responses. So The Martian, aims high enough or too amiable? It's a crowd-pleaser for sure, isn't it? I mean, this thing is probably going to stick around and be amidst the Oscar talk because it does hit all those buttons and it hits them well. I liked it better than this, but usually the Oscar winner is about a three out of four star movie for me that Mm -hmm. I appreciated uh, and am not surprised to see it win because it is so crowd pleasing. The Martian, though better than that, I think does work in those ways. If there's something that holds me back a little bit, maybe it is to the degree that it is crowd-pleasing towards its end or the way it amps that element up because I very much think one of the strong qualities of the film is its optimism, its Mm -hmm. can-do spirit, the way that Damon's Mark Watney is just going to get the job done. No matter what else happens, he's not going to sit around thinking about it or philosophizing about it. He's going to get the job done and that infiltrates into the entire spirit of the film. I do think when this expands... In the scenes where NASA, the NASA engineers and scientists and executives back on Earth are trying to put together a rescue plan for him and the entire globe gets in on this and they begin watching and cheering him along, I felt it got a little we are the world-ish in a way that put me off. I mean, by the point even the Chinese governmental space agency is willing to lend a hand, you're starting to get in a little wishful territory, I think. You know, I mean, everyone's just holding hands around the globe to get this guy home. Though, if you think about it just for one second, if you see this whole movie in some ways as a reality TV show, and it is, right? It's like being at Big Brother House with these cameras on him all the time, whether he has an audience or not, he's talking as if he has an audience. And when we get the whole globe behind him, it does feel like this would be one galvanizing incident that maybe the whole world could actually well, that, you get know behind. What? That's what the movie wants you to believe. Mm-hmm. And it's certainly that's why you go out feeling so good, because it does make you believe it. But I think there's I think that's worth questioning and maybe even puncturing because it seeps into earlier parts of the film, too, even into things like these Martian vistas that Scott shoots so majestically and it has this arid sepia color scheme but still they're not necessarily threatening no. areas that, scary that we're planet. worried about mm-hmm. they are more they have the feel of territories that should be explored if not conquered so mm-hmm. there's there's a very manifest destiny feel to this film that perhaps some people could find troubling. I I think that's an element that's worth questioning. Mm -hmm. And I think it does get amped up towards the end. But really, I was enthralled by this thing. And it's not the type of science fiction that I usually go for. I am more the philosophizing type. I love Solaris. I love 2001, A Space Odyssey. I even love The Fountain, one of my favorite Aronofsky films. So those are the kind of movies that generally appeal to me when it comes to science fiction. I'm also not a guy, it'll it'll take me a while to get a handle on a socket wrench. You know, that's not my natural <laughs> affinity. I can figure it out, but, you know, give me a little while. And so a movie that's based on just practical yeah. science, Ingenuity, yes, they're playing ability. up science, but mm-hmm. also just 
doing the work yeah, and not sitting around worrying about what it all means. You know, I thought that Scott and, and Damon, you know, his performance has a lot to do with this, made it compelling every second that it was on the screen. Yeah, I'm with you. I love procedurals. I feel like I talked about this recently on the show, but went back through my notes and maybe I'm misremembering. Movies about process, I think, fascinate a lot of people. They really fascinate me, even when, and maybe especially when, they're about processes that are completely foreign to me, as you just said. Don't know my way around a socket wrench. Certainly don't know my way around botany or any type of astrodynamics. So a lot of the science Turns here... Turns out it's mostly duct tape. There so, you go. You know. Yeah, well, that's a nice little nod to the practicality that this movie espouses. I also love movies about problem solving, and that ultimately is what this movie's about. A character does verbalize it at one point, but it's solved one problem. Another one's going to develop probably, but you just keep solving them until... There are no more problems, hopefully. And my lone complaint, if I was going to try to answer my own prompt there, is that it does run into the issue a little bit that most really detailed, deliberate procedurals run into, which is it devotes so much time to the process that when the plot has to kick in, in the end, so the movie can, you know, end, our hero does either have to make it back home, be rescued, or die trying, it really has to compress time to get there, which also does kind of violate the spirit of the whole movie up to that point. It's day by day by day, moment by moment, and then all of a sudden, seven months later. And yeah, right. I feel a little bit lost by that, or I feel like it does, as I said, a, violate the spirit of the movie. That's a fair question, too. One thing I didn't quite feel as directly as I thought maybe we needed to was the passage of time. Mm -hmm. uh, there's a section where all of a sudden... Watney looks very different. Yeah. It's and after that seven that, months later. Instead of that being gradual, you know, mm -hmm. it, it kind of hits us. So I, th I think that's a fair critique, too. Yeah. I do appreciate as well, and you mentioned this with the more philosophical sci-fi movies you get behind. Like a lot of cinephiles, I would say I feel similarly. But I really appreciate that this movie ends up being, quote unquote, existential, I think. And it does offer some profound moments without ever having to strain for it. I think true to the procedural nature of it. Watney's existence on Mars alone is sufficient. That's sufficiently existential to make you think about a whole host of really serious things. His simple survival on Mars really is grand enough, I think. And he doesn't have to vocalize it. I, I think you're absolutely right. One of the sequences that captures that well, and this goes to Damon's performance, which maybe we should talk about. You know, there's just something inherently can do about the guy and mm -hmm. matter of fact to me, plain spoken. Yeah. And, you know, The Departed shows us that's something of a ruse, that he has other layers. Mm -hmm. But for the most part, that's his persona. Fits so perfectly for this. And maybe too perfectly, there's maybe a way in which he doesn't let us into that uh, hardened exterior shell is so formidable here where he's not going to crack at all, no matter what he faces. And maybe we could say, I'd like to see a little bit more of the inside. But we get one moment where I think that existential nature, again, without being plainly spoken, comes down on us pretty hard. It's after there's a breach in the research station where he has holed up and he has to essentially put a sheet of plastic between himself, again, more duct tape, mm -hmm. and the Martian atmosphere, the lethal Martian atmosphere. A storm comes by and we hear the wind sucking in and out that plastic. So it, it's making this flapping popping, howling sound, and it's a brief shot of Watney trying to ignore it, trying to perform another task, and at one point, he just kind of stops and lets out this low moan. And it's one of the lasting scenes in the movie for me, I think, because it, again, subtly gets at 
what he's really feeling mm-hmm. way underneath, but in the manner of this just trying to go about and do his regular work. Right. Let's do the math. Our service mission here was supposed to last 31 souls. For redundancy, they sent 68 souls worth of food. That's for six people. So for just me, that's going to last 300 souls, which I figure I can stretch to 400 if I ration. So I got to figure out a way to grow three years worth of food here on a planet where nothing grows. Luckily, I'm a botanist. Mars will come to fear my botany powers. The script was written by Drew Goddard, who was part of the team behind Lost, and he co-wrote and directed the very meta Cabin in the Woods. And that's a film that obviously really dissected before our very eyes the horror genre. And at the end of the film, when I saw his credit pop up, I was wondering what drew him to material this ostensibly straightforward. And maybe it was just that, that it is pretty straightforward. Maybe it was a paycheck. Who knows? He did his job well, though. It did occur to me that one potential little subversion to this genre, and I do think, obviously, there is a rescue genre that this movie fits into, is the way there is nobody waiting for Mark back on Earth, except NASA people and other crew members. But they see him as more of a colleague, a fellow professional, not so much a family member, even though those lines, of course, are sometimes blurred. But that whole notion of professionalism and being part of a crew is something this movie devotes a whole lot of time to. And so we get Watney up there on Mars, never pining for his wife or his born or unborn kids, nor do we see them thinking about him and pining for him to return. Our interest in him getting back to Earth isn't caught up in anything emotional. I love that. It's just about the achievement of it. We're caught up in him simply accomplishing the task, him simply solving the problem. Yeah, and that diverges from Apollo 13, which otherwise the movie very greatly resembles. Obviously, that's historically based, so you have the families that we know were there. Wait, this movie movie isn't historically based? (laughs) This has not happened yet, oh, Adam. Okay. So, sorry I told to, you I don't follow, sorry to break I don't follow you. science. You got to get out a little bit more. Yeah. So, yeah, I, I, I think that that is a, a key point. There's one reference where he's preparing a goodbye letter to his parents, which I think is helpful in just giving us some context that mm-hmm. he didn't just emerge from another planet. This is a guy with some roots on Earth. But it does push then the idea of the colleagues as family because he is abandoned. We shouldn't give away how. But he is abandoned by a crew that was on Mars with him early on in the movie's opening scenes. And they do essentially become his family, especially when they learn that he has survived and they want to be part of the rescue plan. They're not informed of it right away. I will say, you know, thinking about things that maybe didn't quite work, the whole NASA handling of the information and what to let out, the whole PR angle of this film Hmm. to me felt like a little bit of wasting time or force, like they were trying to generate some drama beyond what else they had. Because essentially, you know, they're worried about the world blaming NASA for leaving this guy behind. I think that's all legitimate. I fell for all that, Josh. Not if they, I mean, if the particulars of what we see of how it happens, again, we won't give away the details, but if, if they had let that out, no one, we would have been singing We Are the World a lot sooner. Hmm. No, I think the movie did address that, and it all made sense to me, at least the PR point of view. You touched on 
a moment, though, for me that is one of two really standout moments in the movie. And as much as I'm talking about how it doesn't strain for profundity or doesn't strain to be overly emotional, there are, along with many laugh-out-loud moments, and I did laugh out loud multiple times in this movie, there are emotional moments and poetic moments. And I joked, of course, in the setup that I can't imagine anybody hating this film or even not liking it. So after I wrote that setup, I went to Rotten Tomatoes to see if there are any dissenters. And sure enough, of course, there are a few of them. One of them, Stephanie Zaharik, wrote in The Village Voice that as elaborate and expensive looking as The Martian is, it's almost totally lacking in poetry. And I guess it depends on your definition of poetry. It's definitely not 2001 or Solaris or even Interstellar or Prometheus. But that moment, that low moan moment when something bad has happened and he hears the wind howling and he knows that his life depends on that tarp, that dread really comes through in that moment in Damon's performance, knowing that as far as he's come, as long as he has survived, he's done the unthinkable to survive this long. He's no longer in control of his own destiny. And you know what? He probably never really was, but he thinks he is. There's a bit of that hubris about him after a while that he is kind of conquering and colonizing this planet. And that no longer is in play anymore. And so that moment is really powerful. And I think there's another one even more powerful. It's when he's communicating with NASA for the first time. And I think it's Ejiofor who writes to him, we've been watching you since day 54. And this is now 40 or 50 days, I think, after day 54. And it's another subtle but emotional breakdown type of moment that Damon has. And yes, we, of course, expect to watch a character finally communicating with someone back on Earth and maybe getting a little bit emotional. Or in other films like this, if they were communicating with a loved one, clearly they might have a breakdown moment like that. But with Damon, it's not just a cry. It's something from the gut. It's an existential yelp. Just at the knowledge that the whole time he thought he was alone in the universe, it turns out he wasn't. And I found that very moving as well. So I love that the movie makes time for those types of moments and that they have that bit of nuance to them. Damon has a really good moment, too, near the climax where he has sort of a a gut-level, teary reaction to something. I I put it up there with Matthew McConaughey's similarly teary moment in Interstellar. What I really like also, though, about this film and Goddard's screenplay in particular is the way it has a lot of fun – skirting profundity Mm -hmm. as well. And I think of the scene where we sneak up on Watney as he's watching a rerun of Happy Days. We notice he's twirling a crucifix and he's deep in thought. And And you you start to think, oh, here we go. (laughs) Contemplating his place in the universe. He's going to give us some real meaningful bit of wisdom. And, And he just suddenly pauses and says, the problem is water. Yeah. <laughs> and, we, and it shouldn't come as a surprise at that point, but that is how mm-hmm. this guy thinks. What is the practical problem I need to solve next? Yeah, I think Damon is really good in this role. I think there is a certain deadpan quality to Watney. And at the same time, he can ham it up for the camera at times as well. He does that very well. The dialogue, too, from Goddard throughout, it feels like... Aaron Sorkin without the flashiness of Sorkin. And I say that as someone who generally likes Aaron Sorkin's dialogue, but it's never here about the words or how they're said, but it's still, I think, very sharply written. And speaking of Sorkin, we could praise different performances, but just thinking about Aaron Sorkin, I couldn't help but watch Jeff Daniels and think about the HBO series The Newsroom, which I did watch. And just the way Daniels, very good actor, 
recalibrates his performance here and plays someone very similar to the character he plays on the newsroom, a guy who is the boss, who's working with a lot of younger people, is frequently exasperated or should be exasperated, but he does just alter it a little bit. He alters his persona a little bit so that the smugness that does come through with his character on the newsroom, a smugness that comes from the way that he walks into every room assuming he's the smartest guy in the room, but he also probably is the smartest guy in the room. Here, he's surrounded by some of the most brilliant minds in the world. So Daniels just dials it back a little bit, and there's a more vulnerable side to him, despite the fact that he does have an all-business, problem-solving exterior. I really like Daniels here. Yeah, I think he's good. He, I did not have a problem with his performance in the NASA scenes. And uh, I also did not have a problem whenever they would switch it to the engineers or scientists doing their work, which again is drawn directly from Apollo 13. But I loved those sequences as well. And this proves to be a worthy heir to that really good film. Mm -hmm. That is The Martian out now in wide release. If you see it and agree or disagree with our takes, if you are someone out there who actually hates The Martian, I think you're crazy, but I can't wait to hear you tell me why. Feedback at filmspotting.net. Two of Ridley Scott's previous sci-fi efforts, Alien and Blade Runner, faced off in the Film Spotting Deathmatch poll. Find out the results next. Plus, we'll interview Chicago's own Stephen Cohn, whose new movie plays the city's upcoming film festival. Stay with us. interruption here folks to remind you that we're also brought to you by Mubi, a curated online cinema that brings its members a hand-picked selection of the best independent international and classic films and we will have a note here in a moment with some more information about Mubi and one of their exciting offerings coming up or actually i think it was just released this past thursday the new pt anderson film we'll have a note about that in the next segment but we have a few other highlights from Mubi that we want to share right now Mubi is partnering with the new york film festival they're going to host a retro Perspective of the Fest's inaugural projection section. This presents film and video work that expands upon their notions of what the moving image can do and be. Films among this series will include Letters to Max. This is an ingenious and unusual essay film about the breakaway Caucasian state of Abkhazia. There's also Sea of Vapors, an experimental short where a cascade of images cut frame by frame flows into an allegory of the lunar cycle. And Detour de Force, a fascinating portrait of 
photographer Ted Sirios. He's a hard-drinking Chicago bellhop who caused a sensation in the 60s with his psychic ability to produce hundreds of Polaroid images from his mind. And here I thought I was the only guy in Chicago who had photographer on his business card. One other movie we want to highlight from movie Mysterious Skin. This is a movie that was reviewed here on the show, I want to say, back in 2005. Joseph Gordon-Levitt and The Walk, of course, opened last weekend. And this was really my discovery of Joseph Gordon-Levitt, separate from seeing a few images of him flash by on Third Rock from the Sun. This was when we knew he was something special as an actor in that Greg Araki film. So that's one that if you haven't caught up with, definitely recommend you see. And Mubi has it available now. Every day, Mubi's curators introduce a new title. You then have 30 days to watch it. So there's always 30 wonderful films to enjoy, all for just $4.99 a month. Listeners of Film Spotting can try Mubi free for one month. Just go to Mubi.com slash Film Spotting to redeem now. That's M-U-B-I.com. Slash film spotting. I want to be a photographer. I hear you've been worse than usual this morning. I didn't think that was possible. It's a system error. Fix it. Fix it? Yeah. We're not a pit crew at Daytona. This can't be fixed in seconds. You didn't have seconds. You had three weeks. The universe was created in a third of that time. Well, someday you'll have to tell us how you did it. Michael Stuhlbarg, Michael Fassbender, that's film spotting madness champion Michael Fassbender, and Jeff Daniels and that bit of the trailer from Danny Boyle's Steve Jobs, the real star of the clip, possibly... Aaron Sorkin's dialogue. Welcome back to Film Spotting. Steve Jobs, a film that has already gotten quite a bit of attention on the fall film festival circuit, debuted at Telluride, then played at Toronto and New York. It opens wide on October 23rd. It is opening in limited release and here in Chicago on the 16th, and that is the movie we plan to review next week on the show. Before we get to our highly anticipated and hotly contested deathmatch poll results and get into our preview of the Chicago International Film Festival, we do have a couple of quick notes. Again, giving away some free passes, Josh. We love to give away free movie passes to our Chicago area listeners. One of my most anticipated movies of the fall season, Room, starring Brie Larson, opens on Friday the 23rd in Chicago. We are going to give away some free advance tickets to a Wednesday, October 21st screening here in the city. Go to filmspotting.net. You can enter there to try to win those passes. And as we did touch on briefly last week on the show, the new documentary from... Paul Thomas Anderson, Jun Jun, debuted Thursday at midnight this past Thursday here over at Mubi.com, M-U-B-I.com. We are, of course, very excited for Mubi to get that world premiere. Hopefully that will introduce a lot of people to that great service and give our own listeners some additional incentive to give it a try. We do hope to find some time to see it ourselves this weekend, and it might just come up in a little more discussion on next week's show. Brand new Paul Thomas Anderson. I think we can find the time. Yeah, hopefully. More information about Mubi and Jun Jun will be found in the notes for the show over at filmspotting.net. I've seen things you people wouldn't believe. <laughs> Attack ships on fire off the shoulder of Orion. I watched sea beams glitter in the dark near the Tenhauser Gate. All those moments will be lost in time. Like tears in rain. 
time to die. And cue Dove. Time for the results of our Ridley Scott deathmatch. Maybe our best deathmatch ever here on the show. Alien versus Blade Runner. Josh, which film's moment will soon be lost in time? Like tears in rain. Whose turn is it to die? Boy, that was almost a massacre theater. (laughs) Well, (laughs) listeners will be able to listen to that speech over and over and over because Blade Runner survives. It got 53% of the vote to Aliens 47%. We had so many people vote in this poll, one of our most voted in ever, and it was really close. I'm surprised actually at how wide the margin was there in the end, 53 to 47, because there were times throughout the voting over the past couple of weeks where it was Just one a vote, couple of votes. three votes, seven votes. It was great to see. We heard from a lot of listeners like Ben H. in Houston who shared this thought, you people are evil. This may be the hardest death match in film spotting history. Which is better, the flawlessly taught film with minimal, interesting, grander themes, Alien, or the not quite perfect but deeply moving and one-of-a-kind work of art, Blade Runner? In this case, as much as I adore Alien as a truly perfect work of entertainment and pulp suspense, a world without Blade Runner is a sad world indeed. Putting aside the countless films that has influenced, Blade Runner remains one of the best visions of the future, a perfectly poetic tribute to Los Angeles and the defining American film of the 1980s. Jennifer Linton from Toronto said, This is the Sophie's Choice of all film spotting polls. Two of my all-time favorite films. Only one can survive. The tears splash on my keyboard as I type my choice, Alien. It single-handedly created the sci-fi horror genre, gave us one of the most memorable final girls in the character of Ripley, and is a pitch-perfect slow boil of a monster movie, plus H.R. Geiger's beautifully creepy designs. James Carollis writes, My choice is definitely Alien, but I disagree with the contention that Alien single-handedly created the horror sci-fi genre. Fight. 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 It certainly perfected it, but 1958's It, the terror from beyond space, is remarkably similar in plot construction, featuring an alien who kills a crew one by one, is ultimately killed in almost the same way, and predated Scott's film by over 20 years. I still say, spoiler alert, James. I would argue that even Fritz Lang's Metropolis from 1927 featured horror tropes mixed in with the science fiction. Was Alien the first? No. Is it one of the best most definitely. And how did it work out that you get to say the name no, go of ahead. our next listener? You're going to let ahead. me do it? Yeah, you can do it. I'll read his note, but you say the name. Okay, we are going to share a little bit more feedback than normal with these poll questions simply because the death match was so good and the feedback was so good. And we got it from listeners with great names like Thomas Dargent in Hesse, Germany. He's formerly, though, of Lyon. France. Are you sure you got Hesse right? No, not at all, Josh, but I'm just going to say it really fast and keep plowing ahead. I am not going to talk about how, as good as Alien is, Blade Runner is the better movie. I am not going into detail about the richer plot, the depth of the world created, and of the themes explored, the great writing, the unique and entrancing ambiance, the fabulous art direction, the music. Instead, I will only give you four words that should definitely solve this question. Tears in the rain. Mic drop. Thomas is not wrong. We already referenced it. We played the clip. It was the scene, that bit of dialogue that you'll remember, made my top five list of tattoos I would get. Yes. So that's how close Blade Runner and that scene in particular and that bit of performance from Rutger Hauer is to my heart. And yet I voted alien. You did? It, isn't it only three words, though? Thomas, tears in rain. It's not tears in the rain. <laughs> he butchered it. He just destroyed it. Come on. <laughs> Sean Lass says both of these movies are masterpieces of design and atmosphere, but one of them is also a masterpiece of screenwriting, pacing, and tension. 
and the other one is Blade Runner. The only reason it has any emotional heft at all is because of Rutger Hauer. He's so brilliant, he's able to bring weight and gravitas to silly dialogue. Alien, on the other hand, is a perfect film. The stripped-down genre aspect of it, which some have cited as a reason to vote against it, is actually its greatest strength. I'd rather have an exceptional haunted house-slash-monster-slash-slasher movie than a jumbled, mediocre rumination on what it means to be human any day of the week. From Western Massachusetts, we heard from Benjamin Miner. Having just recently revisited both movies, I found alien boring, ponderous, no longer frightening, and largely interchangeable with any number of sci-fi flicks of the era. Blade Runner, on the other hand, is so completely immersive and so visually dazzling, the power of its visual presentation alone makes it a perennial classic. Putting it to a death match against the ultimately cheap scare show that is Alien, well, I very nearly take that as a personal insult. If Blade Runner somehow loses this death match, I'm going to cry. <laughs> All right. Ultimately cheap scare. The gloves are off. Zach in L.A. says Blade Runner is a mess. Overstuffed atmospheric production design and a confused childish narrative. It's a tough sit whether you're 16 or 36, full of stilted acting, wannabe noir voiceover, and dated visual effects. I'll be glad to see the masterpiece Alien survive this deathmatch, dooming all equally risible cuts of the forgettable, titanically overrated Blade Runner into relieving non-existence. All right, let's get to some more positive thoughts back here with William Evans from Woodland Hills, California. To everyone saying that Alien is just a genre film, I will just quote what Dan O'Bannon, the film screenwriter, has to say about exactly why he wrote the film. One thing that people are all disturbed about is sex. I said, that's how I'm going to attack the audience. I'm going to attack them sexually. And I'm not going to go after the women in the audience. I'm going to attack the men. I'm going to put in every image I can think of to make the men in the audience cross their legs. The entire film, William goes on, is clearly trying to get you into the body of a woman. It's trying to make men feel like what it means to walk around, very conscious of the fact that someone could force themselves on you and rape you. And it succeeds wildly. So please do not discredit Alien as just a genre film. Personally, I would say Blade Runner is more of a genre film. Not that it's bad, but it clearly takes the best of film noir tropes and plays with them. It's stylistic and fun, but aside from a few powerhouse moments, it's not as singular or astonishing in artistic vision as Alien. I'm buying that. L. Lewis closing us out here. When I was younger, I would have picked Alien. I saw this film when it originally opened. It was like being slammed with an overwhelming sense of fear. I went home after the film to my apartment. This speaks a little bit to that last comment. I went home after the film to my apartment. My boyfriend was out of town. I had to call a friend and spend the night at her home. No other film has ever done this to me. Now that I'm in my 60s, I have to pick Blade Runner, though. This film speaks to my growing sense of my own mortality. Like Rucker Howard's baddie, I am greedy for more life. I've had a splendid run, but I want more. I have a wealth of memories and knowledge of the world. I would also like to poke the creator or rules of evolution in the eye for making me age and eventually turning off my brain. Great stuff. One more here from Jeff in Glendale, Arizona, who chose Alien. Because of all the reasons everyone has stated, and because I still don't know which version of Blade Runner I should be watching. A valid point. Okay, so no one brought up, though, the reason I finally did go Blade Runner. We've got aliens. I know they're two different films doing different things, Mm -hmm. but, you know, wipe Alien off the map. You still can watch Aliens. Blade Runner's gone. There's not much like it. Okay, I think that's a cop-out, but it was well argued, Josh. Thank you, everyone, for voting. Thank you for the wonderful feedback. And, Josh, I am sticking to this. When we have an upcoming show where... We don't have an obvious movie to review. Maybe there isn't an obvious sacred cow or blind spotting film to talk about. This death match has to happen. I need to revisit both of these films before truly weighing in. I went with my gut. I went with Alien, the movie I have seen more recently, even though even that I think was five to seven years ago. 
Blade Runner is another movie. I did Adore back when I saw it in the context of a film noir class, a hard-boiled America class, and my instructor at the time preferred the version with the voiceover for that reason. So I've only seen that version. I don't know which version we would watch, but we'll make that decision with our listeners' help. No, that's a great idea because honestly, my vote for Blade Runner is a little bit tenuous. I haven't seen it in forever, and I do wonder if I'd find it pretentious now. So maybe that's how we should kick off a new series, Sacred Cow Showdowns, two (laughs) films against each other. Love it. Love it. Or it could be its own podcast. We have our own time to start that, right, Josh? Oh, yeah, no problem. Ridley Scott has made a lot of movies about a lot of different things, but As far as we know, he's never made one about the Cold War, unless maybe that's what legend is truly about. We don't know. This week's poll question has us reminiscing about the good old days of U.S.-Russia brinksmanship as we look ahead a couple weeks to the release of Steven Spielberg's Cold War drama, Bridge of Spies. We're asking you simply to name your favorite Cold War movie, and we're giving you a few different options here, eliminating along the way the most obvious and objectively speaking best Cold War movie. We just think that Kubrick's Dr. Strangelove would run away with the voting, and rightfully so. With that in mind, we then did cut it out, and we tried to make the poll a little bit more interesting. We'll see if we pulled that off. It's also worth noting that we are emphasizing with these picks movies that are explicitly about U.S.-Russian tensions. We're giving you a few of the most iconic, doesn't necessarily mean good, but most memorable Cold War movies to choose from. And if you don't like our options, hey, you can vote other if, say, you love Colossus the Forbin Project as much as I do and listener Peter Lubuza does. After all that, Dr. Strangelove, Memorial, Poll, your favorite Cold War movie. Josh, the options are The Hunt for Red October, which I believe I saw on our honeymoon trip. Love it. <laughs> Made time for The Hunt for Red October. The good movie. That, right? Good flick. The Manchurian Candidate, going back a little bit further. Red Dawn, Rocky Four. Yeah. Who put this on there? I might have had a role in it. And other. Here's some other options you might go for. War Games, Failsafe, Miracle. Isn't that is that the hockey movie? It is the hockey okay. movie. 13 Days, The Spy Who Came In From the Cold. That's a good one. And Tinker Taylor, Soldier Spy. This might be the first ever film spotting poll question where other actually does win. But I'm a fan of any poll that includes both 80s classics, Red Dawn and Rocky IV. Best poll ever. This one trumps the really Scott death match. We want to know what you think. You can vote now at filmspotting.net. And if you do vote and leave us some feedback, please let us know where you're listening from. Hey, there's the birthday boy. How'd you guys sleep? Fine. Great. Happy birthday, sweetheart. Thanks, Mom. Autumn birthday breakfast. Autumn! Yeah, it's just like my brother and his friends and like some people who work with dad. Mega church friends or school friends? Both. Why? What's up? The Chicago International Film Festival is just around the corner, starts October 15th, runs for two weeks through the 29th. And to help us preview this year's lineup is a first-time guest. He's a very talented Chicago filmmaker who, in the brief time I've known him, has proved himself to be also just incredibly smart about film in general, which means I would hate him if he also wasn't one of the nicest guys you'll ever meet. His latest film, Henry Gamble's Birthday Party, which you just heard a bit of the trailer for, is playing this year's festival. Stephen Cohn, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. This is already a blast. Well, I mentioned that you're a first-time guest, but this isn't the first time you've been mentioned on the show. Last year, I listed you as one of my discoveries of 2014. Thanks to our friend Michael Phillips, he did a profile of you in the Chicago Tribune, and that 
caused me to seek out The Wise Kids, which I believe is playing on Netflix again. Am I right? Yeah, it's back on Netflix. It, those movies expire every now and then and then bounce back. And Yeah, yeah definitely worth seeking out Black Box and This Afternoon, which played last year's Chicago Film Festival and was one of my critics' picks. We'll get to Henry Gamble in a second. First, the pressing question. We just finished our deathmatch poll results. Ridley Scott classics, Alien versus Blade Runner. I'm going to put you on the spot. You've decided to give up filmmaking. You're retired. You're now the film czar, which I think is a position you deserve. Thanks. You're the film czar. You get to decide for all time which of these films future cinephiles get to enjoy, Alien or Blade Runner. Which one do you choose? Alien. Really? Oh. Yeah. It lost. It lost. 53 to 47. Uh, I'm, I'm sorry to hear that. <laughs> is that is that a gut reaction or is that... No, uh, I'm not a Blade Runner fan. Ah, okay. Yeah. Well, that makes it easy I, for I, you. I find it a little um, boring. Boring. That's, that's a good word. <laughs> and, but I was, to put it bluntly. I was telling Josh <laughs> I, I, that um, I, I'm not a huge Ridley Scott fan, so it's not a super fair question. But I do think Alien is pretty um, astonishing. What about his latest? I'll put you on the spot there as I well. Have you seen, seen The Martian? Okay. Mm-mm. Okay. No, I haven't been. Uh, there's a lot of movies out there. Yeah, you know. Yeah, we <laughs> and know. When you and when you don't love a filmmaker, it takes a while to mm-hmm. maybe catch up. We were saying too. Ridley Scott is no longer an indicator of, for me at least, of whether or not you should. He used to be very Here much we go. so in my Prometheus childhood. Prometheus bashing he, he again. Used to, it's not just Prometheus. He used to be like the reason to see a movie, and now he could make a movie great. For sure, but he's no guarantee that it's going to be great. I think Robin Hood's a masterpiece. Mm-hmm. I don't know what you're talking about. I'm sort of in the Tony Scott camp, actually, yeah. personally. So I can see that. That's where I come from. That's no longer rare. There are a lot of film fans who have decided Tony might be the, the better brother after all. Let's talk about your latest film, Henry Gamble's Birthday Party. I mentioned this afternoon that was a bit more of an experimental film, and maybe you can talk about the actual production of that and how that movie got made and how it's different from something like Henry Gamble. And just tell us about the movie in general for people who are out there listening and are contemplating going to the festival. What should they know about your movie? When I talk about the movies, I mean, the, the sort of big, it's funny to say big ones because they aren't, so there's even my biggest budgets are considered micro budget, you know. But typically the movies that have more or less sort of done well and had some sort of professional sheen or whatever have been, Wise Kids and Black Box and Henry Gamble. And so there was this little, yeah, I made it on a whim. It was a, I teach, I run the cinema lab at Acting Studio Chicago where I make short films with actors. We develop them together and then we shoot them. We've made 33 shorts in three years, probably like uh, 300 minutes, five hours worth of film. And uh, there was this one, actually the first one that we ever did was at a sex addicts group and and I wasn't going to shoot a larger film that summer. And th- so that year, just sort of on a whim, we rehearsed. We had no script. We rehearsed. I recorded them. A few days later, I wrote the script, and then we were shooting like a week later. Hmm. So the whole thing, the conception, everything just ha- was like a month. And so it was interesting for even people to, like, y'all to talk about it. And <laughs> it, was just, it was like, <laughs> we just did this for fun. But it was nice. I mean, it didn't yeah. have a huge life. There's not a, a lot of, there's not really a home for mm-hmm. a movie like that. Yeah, um, but I knew that the next summer I would probably attempt some sort of larger film or the, the biggest film that I'd made up to that point, and uh, decided to make Henry Gamble's birthday party. Which was, do you want to know about where it came from? And Absolutely, we do. Uh, <laughs> so I'd written this. This will amuse probably both of you, but I'd written a script four or five years back called Porn Ministry. 
that was going to be about... Great title. Um, yeah, well, it, not a great script. But it was going to be about uh, two Southern ministers. One of them discovers that their teenage son is looking at porn on the computer. And rather than sort of scold him, they sort of feel a calling to minister to these people in this business. And so they go to the San Fernando Valley and attempt to go door to door and start witnessing and sharing the gospel with the the porn industry and and uh, just it, i mean it sounds much better than it actually was i, mean, I do want I to mean, see this movie. i was but i was attempting to do sort of a um sounds like an hbo series a what really I, good hbo series maybe yeah and i don't know but i you know what i wanted it to be i really had movies this may sound weird but jonathan demi is a hero of mine so i was thinking of like something wild and married to the mob and something mm. with a little bit of sort of a comic energy that's mm-hmm. also poignant and Anyway, it just didn't – I don't think I was meant to make that kind of thing at that point. But the movie culminated in them coming back from California and a church group coming over and having this boy's birthday party. And what I loved about it was that this is a movie about porn and then we're going to end with this extended sequence of a bunch of Christians gathering and then taking off all their clothes, which is at its core what I make movies about is, na- is naked Christians. Naked Christians. Yeah. <laughs> and um, so I, I was trying to figure out what to make. And um, I'd, I'd already tackled that world a little bit in The Wise Kids. And but I was just like, man, what if – and I really love contained spaces. Mm-hmm. It's not really a budget thing for me. It's just because I love it. So I thought, what if this pool party sequence is an entire feature and that's my next feature? And uh, I thought maybe it could be a slightly more hard-hitting, maybe a little more cutting, incisive version. That Some people have, have said that Henry Gamble's sort of Wise Kids turned up to 11. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and uh, so that's – yeah, mm-hmm. I, it was sort of deliberately a slightly different tone and wanting to hit because around that time too there was a lot of talk about the consequences of sort of evangelical piety on young gay people and causing them to kill themselves and cut themselves and and I was like you know Wise Kids was very gentle and mm-hmm. kind of loving and I thought well maybe this pool party movie is maybe I can punch it a little harder and uh, I think some people probably prefer one tone, some people prefer another. But it was definitely, like, I was very conscious of working on similar material and wanting to make it different. I think that's a fair description, Wise Kids turned up to 11. And it makes me wonder what the vision was in terms of audience, because you're depicting a very specific subculture here. And it, I think it's like the purity subculture you're talking about as well. And... It's a critique in a lot of ways. Hard-hitting is is accurate, too, of that subculture. So the question is, and maybe this isn't something you really care about, but I do wonder if you thought about who did you hope would get to see this movie? And maybe more importantly, how did you hope they would watch it? I mean, audience-wise, I had similar ideas for The Wise Kids. I mean, you just hope that some kid will discover it on, on Netflix late at night and see something. But I have to say, like, the audience for Wise Kids, and already the audience and the, the kind of people responding to it are much wider and more varied than I anticipated. So, I mean, anyone, I mean, you know, even it's the largest evangelical Protestant, that sort of world is like the largest in the country. But even, you know, people who grew up in a devout Jewish family, they recognize something in there. And, mm-hmm. I don't know, I guess. Yeah, the I, whole, I mean, the, the sex and religion <laughs> yeah. dynamic there, of course, it crosses a, a lot of cultural boundaries. So, yeah. yeah. Huge audience for that, for sure. Um, sure. And hopefully an audience for, um, like, entertaining pool party movies. So I think that, you know, <laughs> I mean, that's that's the ideal. There you go. A little if fast you... times at Ridgemont High yeah. there. And, yeah. That was, I mean, you know, the, I was in, in L.A. doing the sound mix and I was having lunch and I'd pulled in my production designer, of all people, because I, she's very smart and I love having her around. And 
she was telling my sound designer, she said, I still want Stephen to make his, like, John Hughes movie. And I was like, I think maybe that I did. <laughs> really and I'm sorry, <laughs> but, I, you know, I think that's, this is it. So it was, you know, I didn't spend, it, it was a, a movie I spent probably as much time thinking about like a movie like The Ice Storm as I did John Hughes movies, you know? Well, and speaking of influences, I don't know if this was one you thought of, but early on in the film, Robert Altman came to mind to me. And that's maybe a heavy burden to lay on this picture. But at the same time, not only with the ensemble cast and uh, taking in this one specific environment and trying to give us a whole picture of it, but also things like the overlapping dialogue and the sound design. Was that something that was in the back of your mind, his films or that style of filmmaking? Or is it something maybe now looking at afterwards, it seems like uh, a method you were after? He's so, I mean, maybe the amount of people in his work, uh, the, the large ensembles, but he's so stylistically specific, it's very hard to be inspired by him, you know, because you can't really copy him, you know? Sure. So, you know, but he is, I, you know, we share an interest in communities. We share an interest in wanting multiple points of view at the same time. But I can't say he's ever at the front of my mind just because he's so specific. Sure. Yeah. Well, Henry Gamble's birthday party, if the phrase is porn ministry and pool party, yeah. appeal to you. It's the movie <laughs> for the you. Movie for right. you. <laughs> it sounds like, as usual, Josh was the more professional critic and actually saw your movie, Stephen, before talking to you. I have yet to see it. Oh, you it haven't have seen it. It will have to be, for me, <laughs> one of my most anticipated Chicago Film Festival movies. And it is. He I just did, did that hold so it out he had a pick five. on his list. That's right. right. No, no. I held it off the top five just so I could fit in a few other mentions here. But let's get into the preview. And we do this every year or have recently over the years, Josh, because we feel like we have a little bit of a civic duty as a Chicago Bay show to highlight and promote the festival, but also thinking about our listeners, not only in Chicago, but around the country, around the world. These are some titles that are going to continue to come their way through other film festivals, or they are movies that maybe just should be on their radar. Some filmmakers that, who knows, maybe we're exposing them to these listeners for the first time. So it's something hopefully people have a little bit of a stake in whether or not they're actually going to attend the Chicago International Film Festival. Why don't you go ahead and start us off with your number five pick and just any thoughts that went into forming the list. Just took the approach that uh, I have to the other festivals I've been able to go to is try to see things or pick things that I want to see that are not necessarily going to get a release here in Chicago in the next few months. They might and that'd be great, but it's not a guarantee. So here's your shot to check them out. So at number five, I have 45 years. I first heard about this on Simon Mayo and Mark Kermode's BBC podcast. They interviewed co-star Tom Courtney and were pretty high on it. Courtney is working with director Andrew Haig, who's known from Weekend. And he stars here with Charlotte Rampling as a 45-year married couple who are confronted with long-buried secrets. Courtney, of course, Adam, we saw when we finally got around to watching Dr. Zhivago. He's had a long and storied career, and the same could be said of Rampling. It goes all the way back to Georgie Girl and The Damned. They both won top honors at the Berlin Film Festival for their performances in 45 years. It, you know, it's always good to see actors who have aged out of the Hollywood demographic for getting roles to still get a chance to do important lead work. 45 Years is playing at the Chicago Festival. Two chances to see that one, October 17 and October 20. Great pick. Stephen, what about your number five? 
I just want to say Andrew Hay is a really fantastic filmmaker and a great guy too. We we had he was out on the festival circuit with, with Weekend when The Wise Kids was out, so oh, we nice. had to spend a little bit of time together. And he's and he did Looking on HBO. That yes, was he did. His, that was his series. My number five is a um, what's well, a sort of combo effort. There's a great local company called Strange Loop Productions, um, run by Nick Santori and, and his crew, and they work with the filmmaker Bradley Bischoff and uh, Malik Bader. And they have three films this year. Two are features, I think. Nomad might be a short. Cash Only is a feature. And then a short film called Nick Centauri, which I believe is an autobiographical sort of thing. So hmm. there are a lot of names that sort of rise to the top when you talk about exciting local filmmakers. And, and uh, I think it's important to get names that aren't often out there, sort of out there. And they're a really talented, really gung-ho group of people. So they have a great future, exciting future, I think. You see why Stephen and I get along. I think he had three picks there at number five. Yeah, I saw three how movies. he did that. <laughs> It works. It works. My number five, well, I should go back a little bit and talk about how I form my list, I guess. Josh, I have a similar approach. That's also when I used to go to film festivals regularly. I would always try to see things that weren't necessarily the big movies everybody was talking about or that would get a big release, but the ones that maybe I wouldn't have an opportunity to see otherwise. And that's a little bit what I'm doing here with this list. I also see festivals as an opportunity to rectify some egregious blind spots. And so my list really does focus on not a bunch of young filmmakers or up-and-comers like you just mentioned, Stephen, but some real masters who I need to become more familiar with and who I probably should be introduced to on the big screen. So with that in mind, my number five is the Philippe Gorel film, In the Shadow of Women. I have not seen any of his films. I'm familiar with his son, Louis, from movies like Dom Perry and The Dreamers, the Bertolucci film. And this movie, In the Shadow of Women, has gotten some good buzz. Our buddy David Ehrlich, writing about it, I think, from the New York Film Festival, said this. The words, it's a public screening, have never resounded with such impossible sadness. The French may not have invented the love triangle, but they certainly shaped its angles. Or something cute and stupid like that that I would use in a print blurb about this movie. Anyway, Grell needs only a brief 68 minutes to nail how these things usually go and he's particularly spot on regarding how male entitlement bleeds into casual cruelty. Potent, endlessly rewatchable stuff cuts deeper, sharper, and closer to the heart than jealousy. And of course, since I haven't seen any of Gorell's work, jealousy isn't a movie I'm familiar with, though I am familiar with it because I remember in recent years that other critics like David enjoyed that movie and that was a film that starred his son, Louis Gorell, which I think he's made three or four films with him. But this is a guy who's been making films since 1964, I haven't seen one of them. It's time I solved that problem. So I'm hoping to see In the Shadow of Women here at the festival. It plays on October 24th and October 26th. I have the same strategy behind my number four pick, which is The Assassin. I've yet to see anything from acclaimed Taiwanese filmmaker Ho Shen, and this is his first Wosha film. So this is a genre that combines martial arts, music, and dance in stories from Chinese legend or history. The plot here involves a princess who is kidnapped and trained to be a killer. The Assassin is on the cover of the current film Comment, where Eliza Ma describes it as Ho's most monumental in scale and breadth and a poised distillation of his aesthetic codes. Delving into themes of captivity and freedom, Ho finds a parallel between his own contrasting visual strategies and the plight of these characters, trapped between their piety and unrequited emotional desires. So if that sounds good to you, sounds pretty good to me, two chances to see this one also, October 21 and 23. That film may come up again here later in the segment. Stephen, what about your number four? 
Are we allowed to have the same film? Are totally. Of course. Yeah. <laughs> okay, great. Well, I'm not there and yet. And the but... guests always break rules, so that's <laughs> okay, perfectly good. fine. Essentially, my four and five are either Chicago-based or, or Brooklyn-based filmmakers who are up and coming. and have. So my number four is a movie called Stinking Heaven by Nathan Silver. Nathan Silver is um, he's a, a New York-based uh, filmmaker. He's made, I think, one movie per year for the last five or six years. Richard Brody in The New Yorker has hailed him as one of the the and and actually many people in cinephile circles, especially in New York, hail him as you know, some people call him like the heir to Cassavetes or whatever. I would say you can't compare anyone to Cassavetes because he's like essentially basically an alien, but <laughs> he makes very intense, usually New York based character pieces that are intense and wild and often not written. He's also well, he does share with Cassavetes the habit of casting his own mother who has actually won awards at festivals in a big international festivals for her son's films. She's not in this one. This is a movie shot on, I believe, video, v, like VHS, hmm. about a, uh, a commune in the 80s, a sober commune, and how it sort of breaks everyone down psychologically. I saw it in Maryland, and uh, a few weeks later, I still didn't know what I thought about it. But it's utterly remarkable. It's alive. It's divisive. Many people will hate it, but it deserves to be seen. Sounds fascinating. And for people listening, hoping to see some of these titles and are trying to catch all of the titles we're mentioning, we will list all of them over at our website at filmspotting.net. Click on top fives there at the top of the page, or you can find a link in our show notes. My number four is a film from Romania and a director who I suppose still classifies as a bit of an up-and-comer, only has a few features under his belt. And I have seen one of them in this case. The director is Corneliu Porumbo. And I didn't see 1208 East of Bucharest, a film that was released in 2006 and won the Camera Door Best First Film at Cannes that year. But I discovered him at the Toronto Film Festival in 2009. His film Police Adjective made my top five of the film festival. And what I liked about it, having seen recently four months, three weeks, and two days, and hearing a lot more about this Romanian cinema, seeing some of it more at Toronto as well, a lot of times they really were going back to that communist rule and making period pieces. And this was a modern set story. And he followed Police Adjective with a movie called When Evening Falls on Bucharest in 2013. I didn't see it. So I'm really excited to see something else from this filmmaker. What I understand of the movie, it's similar in vain to Police Adjective in that it's a modern story, a very simple story about two neighbors who go on a hunt, a very determined hunt to find some rumored buried treasure. And it works as that basic story, but potentially as well as a larger metaphor for the country, Romania, and for cultural values in Europe as a whole. So Pornbo and his film, The Treasure, is my number four most anticipated movie of the festival. Adam and I will be back, and Stephen's going to stick around to make our final picks for what to see at the upcoming Chicago International Film Festival. Henry Gamble's birthday party, yes, but I'm sure he'll also recommend some others. The Film Spotting Top 5 is next. Stay with us.
This is Film Spotting with Adam, Josh, and our special guest this week, filmmaker Stephen Cohn. His movie, Henry Gamble's Birthday Party, is playing the upcoming Chicago International Film Festival. It is the 51st edition of the annual event. It does start on Thursday, October 15th. The opening night movie, a movie I'm excited to see, Nanny Moretti's Mia Madre Moretti known for the Palme d'Or winning The Sun's Room, also a film I've praised over the years here on the show. I believe it came out in 1994, Caro Diario, an honorable mention for me, but did not make my top five. We've shared our first two picks. We are at our top three most anticipated films of the festival. Josh, what do you have? So my number three is a film that I saw at Sundance earlier this year, I Smile Back. And mostly I wanted to check this out there because I was curious how Sarah Silverman would manage in a straight dramatic role. And and this isn't just a dramatic role. It's really heavy, intense, emotionally fraught part that she plays. Uh, She's an upper-class suburban wife and mother whose struggle with depression turns disastrous and it sends her into this spiral of addiction and other destructive behavior. My brief letterboxed impression of it at Sundance was that it was a dismantling of denial with a very strong Sarah Silverman. And I do think she's quite good. She's exceptionally raw and always completely believable. I bought her in this part, real actress. Mm-hmm. The movie itself, um, I, it's a rough go. It's almost one of those one-timers, but I, I think I'd want to see again to get a better grasp of how I feel about the entire film. But if you're at all curious about her performance, check it out. October 16 is when it plays here in Chicago. Not a big surprise that she's good. Was it Take This Waltz, the Sarah Pauly film, where she was My in a supporting thing role? About but that film. Yeah, yeah, she was probably the best part of that movie. Good pick. Steven, your number three. So Kent Jones is the artistic director of Film Society of Lincoln Center and I think one of the greatest film critics who's ever lived. And I have his collection of writings and I've been reading him for over a decade and he's a huge influence on me. But he started making documentaries over the last several years. He made a documentary about Val Luton and he partners with Martin Scorsese on these films. He made a, a, the documentary about Ilya Kazan with Scorsese. And uh, they've also partnered on uh, Scorsese's World Cinema Foundation. So they're sort of a team devoted to cinema preservation. Anyway, he's made a new documentary called Hitchcock Truffaut, which is a documentary basically inspired by the famous book of conversations between Hitchcock and Truffaut about uh, in which hours and hours and hours of audio was created from Truffaut just talking to Hitchcock and picking his brain. Uh, Really the only interviewer to ever get Hitchcock to open up about every, literally everything. So he's made this documentary. In in the documentary, he talked to Scorsese and David Fincher and Wes Anderson and uh, Kiyoshi Kurosawa and Arnaud de Plechon. And it just looks like an exhilarating sort of interplay, sort of essay film on those recordings and what they have to offer Mm -hmm. people, uh, cinephiles. Yeah. Can't wait to see it. Only reason it's just an honorable mention for me and not in my top five was so Josh wouldn't make fun of me for putting on yet another movie about movies. (laughs) Would have been a little predictable. (laughs) Yeah. My number three, going back to my theme here of great filmmakers, supposed great filmmakers, lauded filmmakers who I am egregiously not familiar with. I've got the latest from Gia Janka. It's Mountains Made to Part. And our friend, again, David Ehrlich, wrote about it. All movies that wait 40 minutes for their title cards are good. That's just a fact. So there you go. You have that to look forward to. And I also have a note from Sean Gilman, who I refer to as the dean of the Film Spotting Forum, holds court over there at our website. He wrote 
this. Sylvia Chang, this year directed Murmurs of the Heart, wrote and starred in Office, and starred in Mountains Made Apart. Tong Wei, this year, gave three terrific and very different performances in Black Hat, Office, and A Tale of Three Cities. I don't know which of them is having the better year, but they're both amazing. And the thing is, Zhao Tao's performance here is better than anything either of them has done this year. So the movie itself, it doesn't really matter what it's about. And it seems, from what I can gather, it spans 25 years. It's really about the director and the fact that I have sadly not seen any films from Gia Janka because I caught at the turn here of the past decade in 2010, a lot of those polls that came out, best films, top 50 films of the decade, top directors of the decade. And if you look at one list where they pulled 60 international curators, programmers, and historians, two of his films, Platform and Still Life ranked among the top three vote-getters in another poll of 100 participants that was conducted by Film Comment there and Kent Jones. Three Gia films appeared on the list in the top 50, and actually Gia was named the decade's top director. So I have some catching up to do, and I'm hoping to do it here in October. My number two comes from another acclaimed Asian filmmaker, though it's one I'm somewhat familiar with. It's Thai director Apichapong Rastakun. His Uncle Boon Mi, who can recall his past lives, was one of the most gorgeously mystifying movies I've seen in recent years. The one here at the Chicago Festival is Cemetery of Splendor. It's been making the rounds. It was at Toronto, but I missed it there. It sounds like it works in a somewhat similar surrealist vein. It's about a group of soldiers who become afflicted with a strange sleeping sickness and the volunteer nurse who communicates with their unconscious selves through a medium. So promises to be one of those bewildering transporting experiences that I find I frequently have at a film festival. I don't know if it's just the environment or it's the chance to see things that are way out there. But if you're open and eager for the unfamiliar and bizarre, you can see Cemetery of Splendor on October 25 or 27. Gotta love Josh. He can't pronounce Oregon correctly, <laughs> but he always nails that director who I prefer to call by his nickname Joe because the name's impossible to pronounce, but Priorities, Josh goes Adam. for it. Priorities. I love it. I love it. Stephen. And speaking of late arriving credits, he, he also made a film called Tropical Malady, which yeah. is mm-hmm. really amazing. The credits pop up about 50, 60 minutes into the film. <laughs> love they, it. They literally sort of split future, it. In, future top five list. Clearly. <laughs> split it in its two halves. Are we in number two? Yeah, we number are. two. Yeah, this I would put The Assassin at number two. I'm a huge fan of Ho Shao Shan and seen all of his 90s movies and 21st century films and the images in the trailer make me I'm not even a huge fan of the era or the style of film mm-hmm. or, and you know he's never made a film like this before I don't know if y'all know his last film was the the Red Balloon remake with Juliette Binoche mm-hmm. Flight of the Red Balloon was the last one anyway the the images are just are just achingly gorgeous and and I think um he's not very concerned with plot which kind of puts it right up my alley. <laughs> well, it's three for three here. Ho Shao Shen's The Assassin is my number two. Josh, of course, it was your number four. And Flight of the Red Balloon, despite my love for Julia Binoche, haven't seen it. Millennium Mambo, another famous film. I swear I started his film three times once in 2005. Maybe it was going to make a film spotting episode. I don't think I finished That's, it, though. That sounds like you. I'm afraid to admit that. Can we I'm do the top to five that. films Adam started? Oh, it's man. one of my favorites. We could do a top 50, unfortunately. <laughs> and it really isn't because of the film. It's, it's my own issues I'm dealing with. But it, of course, has to do with the fact that he's a filmmaker I clearly need to become more familiar with. But what you said, Stephen, as well, What I have seen from three times and what I've read and heard from other fans of his work, he's a very plaintive director, very deliberate filmmaker, images, beautiful, 
I don't think of him as someone who makes martial arts movies. So that's something that is drawing me to this. And I know your friend here, local critic Ignati Vizhnevetsky, he said of it on Letterboxd, simply gorgeous, takes wuxia, the most overplayed genre in Chinese film, and makes it seem completely alien without subverting any of its gestures or values. So that's all I need to hear about The Assassin. It's my number two as well. That brings us to number one, the film we are all most anticipating that's playing here at the Chicago Film Festival. Josh, what is it? So my number one is The Hereafter, and this is a Swedish film that I did see at the Toronto International Film Festival last month, so I can officially recommend it. It's about a teenager who returns to his rural hometown after being released from juvenile detention for committing a terrible crime, and we don't learn what that is till a good stretch into the film. Now, being a Scandinavian movie, and I can say this because I'm part Norwegian myself, this is not a feel-good film at all about the hard road toward reconciliation. It's better, I would say, at capturing festering resentment. But the craft here makes this continually compelling. I was really surprised to learn afterwards that its director, Magnus Van Horn, it's his debut feature. It employs these really patient compositions of the land surrounding this rural community and gets a purposefully opaque performance from Ulrich Munther, who's a relative novice as an actor in the lead. So there's a real existential dread to this movie that is hard to shake when it's over. The Hereafter plays October 16, 18, and 22. Mm. Sounds interesting. Stephen, your number one. My number one is – it's almost, I guess, not – predictable to anybody but myself. But one of my favorite filmmakers, Arnaud Desplechamps, has made a coming-of-age film that takes place in the 70s called um, My Golden Years. And he's a filmmaking hero of mine. He made Kings and Queen, A Christmas Tale, which is probably in my top 25 of all time, and uh, My Sex Life or How I Got Into an Argument. Probably the most underrated film of the 21st century, Esther Kahn with Summer Phoenix and Ian Holm was his English language debut. But this is kind, apparently kind of a prequel to My Sex Life, which was about a 20 or 30-something philosophy student. And this is the same character but in the teenage years. And I think it, it takes place over the course of uh, a couple of different decades. So I'm excited that he's making a com- – he's never really made a kind of straightforward coming-of-age movie. So mm-hmm. I'm excited to see it. Dave Plachon would have fit perfectly with my list and my theme here of masters whose work I need to – experience further kings and queen the only film of his that i've seen unfortunately my number one i'm going to bookend this a little bit josh you started with andrew hayes film 45 years your number five pick it's my number one pick i was a big fan of weekend and i had to look this up it's hard to believe that came out in 2011 it was already four years ago i was wondering where he had gone i'd forgotten that he of course was part of the team that made looking on hbo but weekend is a fascinating Well, I want to say it's his debut, but really, I don't think it was his feature debut. It was just the film that was kind of his breakout, got great performances from Tom Cullen and Chris New and just the way he captured all of their interpersonal dynamics, the the physical discomfort in certain situations. I remember in particular saying as much, if not more than some of the things they actually express to each other. Dana Stevens was co-hosting the show where we talked about Weekend Dana from Slate, of course, and she made some great observations in her review that we touched on in the discussion about the way he shoots on digital video and this sort of verite style and, and the way he gets the overlapping dialogue. It sounds so real. It seems like it must have been improvised or captured on the fly, but you also recognize that it's so perfectly constructed and the conversational beats are precise enough that, that it wasn't 
as off the cuff, surely, as it seems. But yet, I love that kind of immediacy that the movie has. It was on the same show that we talked about Take Shelter, which I think is one of the best, if not the best movies about marriage to come out in the last five years. And this film, 45 Years, is certainly, as you touched on, Josh, a movie about a married couple in crisis. Charlotte Rampling is always good. But Dr. Zhivago did do one thing besides help us eliminate a blind spot. It reminded me of how great Tom Courtney is as an actor. I don't fully know his reputation in England, but I never hear him mentioned among lists of the all-time best British thespians. And of course, there are quite a few. In fact, I googled it today. Time Out in May did a list of the top 50 British actors. He wasn't on the list of the Hmm. top 50. Yet his performances in those Angry Young Man movies, the Kitchen Sink movies of the 60s, Loneliness of the Long Distance Runner, Billy Liar, those are two of my favorite performances of all time. He's that good and apparently that underrated as an actor. Though he wasn't underrated at Berlin Al, he won Best Actor and Rampling won Best Actress for 45 years. So can't wait to see it. Isn't he knighted? Isn't he Sir Tom Courtney? <laughs> well, I mean, if you have that, you should be on that And top yet 50 it's not list. buying him respect. <laughs> Um, it, it, when I think of him, I think of the dresser. Do you remember the dresser with I Albert seen Finney? It. And, Familiar. Yeah, he's he's really astonishing in that. Hmm. I didn't know, I didn't know his, is it odd that he didn't make the top fifty? Yeah, I don't think really he's odd. that. I mean, I think he's very, a very well respected London actor. Maybe maybe he's just stayed closer to the stage. Mm-hmm. I don't know what it is. Yeah, maybe he yeah. has. And until we watch those movies here on the show as part of a marathon, forcing us to become <laughs> more familiar with those films, he was completely new to me. So. Yeah. Maybe more people need to discover Tom Courtney. Josh, any honorable mentions? Any other films you're excited about? Yeah, I mean, I've talked about In Jackson Heights, the Frederick Wisen documentary that I saw Toronto, which was my first Wiseman, speaking of meeting master filmmakers for the first time that I really enjoyed. That is one that's going to be opening, I believe, in Chicago in November. But if you can't wait, there's a chance to see that. And the Todd Haynes film we've been waiting for well over a year now, Carol, I mean – the anticipation, if you if you want to see it now instead of a month or two later, whenever right. it does open Chicago, I would understand that. Another film similar to that, Macbeth, Marion Cotillard, Michael sure. Fassbender, a movie we're all going to get a chance to see at some point, so didn't quite make my list. Stephen, any other titles off the top of your head you want to urge uh, people to see? Yeah, I'd forgotten that In Jackson Heights was in the lineup, actually, so that's really exciting. Cemetery of Splendor almost made the list, and then I replaced it with um, Stinking Heaven, Heart of a Dog, the Laurie Anderson documentary mm-hmm. about love and death and her dog. I, I watched the trailer the other day and it made me cry. And wow. uh, it looks, um, it's a, a sort of experimental essay documentary film about the death of her dog and how that sort of a free associative sort of thing. All my honorable mentions have been honorably mentioned. Hitchcock Truffaut on your list, Stephen, in Jackson Heights. Of course, you mentioned Josh. I smiled back really to see Sarah Silverman again and the opening night film. I do like Nanny Moretti a lot. So Mia Madre is a film I want to see. And Josh, you'll love it. John Turturro stars as a self-important American actor in a film that is about a director and the whole filmmaking process. Let's go gaze at some navels. I'm going to do it. You know I'm going to do it. Those are our top five most anticipated films of the 2015 Chicago International Film Festival. The festival, again, opens on the 15th and runs through the 29th of this month. More information at chicagofilmfestival.com. Stephen, it was a pleasure to have you on. Hopefully we'll have you back sometime. Yeah, thanks for having me. It was good to talk to you, Stephen. Yeah, absolutely. If you do check out the fest, send us your thoughts. You can email us at feedback at filmspotting.net or leave us a voicemail, 312-264-0744. You can also find us on Twitter at filmspotting. That's Adam. I'm at Larson on Film. 
And we are on Facebook, facebook.com slash filmspot. And again, a reminder that you can find the full list of all the movies we're looking forward to seeing here over the next two weeks over at our website, filmspotting.net. That's also where you can find 10 years of reviews, marathons, interviews, and top five lists. Please do, while you're there, take a moment to vote in the current film spotting poll, your favorite Cold War movie. We have a comment already, Josh, I must break you from Drago in Moscow. <laughs> he chimed in, Ivan Drago. Please check out our sister podcast as well, Film Spotting SBU, a bi-weekly podcast hosted by the great Allison Wilmore and Matt Singer, focusing on the world of online movies. More at filmspotting.net or filmspottingsvu.com. A couple titles out in limited release to promote Drunk Stone, Brilliant Dead, the story of National Lampoon, and Yakuza Apocalypse, the latest from prolific Japanese filmmaker Takeshi Miike, of course, of 13 Assassins and Audition fame. Out in wide release, Pan, the Joe Wright film. <laughs> that was a, it that says was here a in my notes why. Pause. It just says why in my notes, actually. Hugh Jackman, Garrett Hedlund, and Rooney Mara in that film. Next week, we are planning on discussing Steve Jobs, Danny Boyle's latest film starring Film Spotting Madness champion Michael Fassbender and Dialogue by Aaron Sorkin. And we think we're going to get to a top five list we teased last week. Tying in with our deathmatch poll recently of Alien and Blade Runner, which were actually made back-to-back. Those were two films in a row from director Ridley Scott. We're going to share our top five back-to-back movies. If you have good ideas, send them our way. Feedback at filmspotting.net. You know what, Adam? I think you should take Sophie to Pan as a reward for finishing The Hobbit. I think you guys would have a great time. <laughs> I don't know that she's going to finish The Hobbit. Film Spotting is produced by Golden Joe Dassault and Sam Van Hogren. Without Sam and Golden Joe, this show wouldn't go. Thanks to associate producer Candace Griffiths and the listeners of the Film Spotting Advisory Board. And special thanks to everyone at Chicago Public Media. More information is available at chicagopublicmedia.org. Our music this week came from Chicago's Knee High. More information is at ne-hi.bandcamp.com. We also want to thank Audible.com for supporting this episode of Film Spotting. For a free audiobook of your choice, go to audiblepodcast.com slash filmspotting. Remember, audiblepodcast.com slash filmspotting to get a free audiobook. For Film Spotting, I'm Josh Larson. And I'm Adam Kempinar. Thanks for listening. This conversation can serve no purpose anymore. Goodbye. have a lot of words hmm. i have a top five that's it that's good that's how michael phillips comes into <laughs> yeah just wings you're, it you're and just like nails it doubly prepared as he is yeah, yeah he's like <laughs> scribbling his titles down as he talks right, it's right. kind of maddening to watch <laughs> right. my number two comes from another acclaimed asian filmmaker though it's one i'm somewhat familiar with it's thai director apicha pong rasa almost you had almost it. Did almost it. had you it usually nail it josh you usually nail it i'm disappointed